Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Esperanza Brizuela Garcia, and today I will be talking to Dr. Christopher Lee about his 2014 book, Unreasonable Histories, Nativism, Multiracial Lives, and the Genealogical Imagination in British Africa, published by Duke University Press. Dr. Lee has studied at various institutions, including Stanford, Harvard, Dalhousie University, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and the University of the Vistaris Rand in South Africa. He is currently an Associate Professor of History and Africana Studies at Lafayette College. Dr. Lee, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, I wonder if you could uh, begin our conversation by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, well, well, you covered some of it. I, I uh, completed my PhD in African History at Stanford University, and uh, there I studied with Richard Roberts and George Fredrickson, uh, Richard White, and uh, Valentin Modimbe. Um, I did my field work in Malawi and later on in Zimbabwe and Zambia. Um, and since then, I've, I've done a lot of work in South Africa. And uh, I'm very interested in... Um, histories, subaltern histories, as in uh, the book Unreasonable Histories, but also um, decolonization um, and uh, those sorts of histories as well. We could, I mean, this is something that perhaps we can unfold over the conversation. But um, in any case, uh, I've, I've been interested in a number of topics, but all primarily oriented around uh, South Africa, Southern Africa. Um, during the 20th century. Uh, and how did you come uh, specifically to write on reasonable histories? Oh, gosh, that's, you know, it's, um, it's well, it was based on a dissertation, um, the dissertation I completed at Stanford, and uh, which is to say it was a while ago. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was a project that, that, I mean, the book came out in 2014. Um, the dissertation itself was completed in 2003. So there was a long period between the dissertation and then the appearance of the book. Um, and I think that was definitely related to the topic. There was a particular gestation period that, um, you know, I, I needed to get to a point where I felt really satisfied with what I was talking and writing about in the book. Um, but in terms of actually the topic itself, I mean, this is something that goes back to, say, 1997. Um, at least as early as 1997. The topic of the book, the, the main uh, sort of focal demographic group are multiracial people um, in Malawi, Zimbabwe, and Zambia. So in Nyasaland, northern and southern Rhodesia. And um, I use the term multiracial as a sociological term that's effectively somewhat neutral 
um, at least in my use, um, to talk about people who um, had African mothers, um, white settler fathers, or at times um, Indian or South Asian fathers. So people of mixed background, quote unquote, mixed race people. But this is, but actually, the term mixed race is something that I critique in the book. Um, I should say too, I'm very critical of the term miscegenation. Um, but the topic of the book is is basically on uh, these people of multiracial background that don't fit into our conventional paradigms of African identity. Um, I should say too, as well, that uh, I'm a multiracial American. My father is Korean and my mother's American. So, you know, I was attracted to the topic um, for those reasons as well. Um, I should say quickly that, you know, it's a very different situation. And, you know, part of this history is um, not just mapping out the differences, but, but also, um, you know, thinking about um, the uses of history and, you know, the kind of personal investments you can have in a certain kind of history based on topic. And certainly that's a common thing for, um, you know, women who do women's history or, um, you know, African-American historians or who are very committed to diasporic history. So, uh, you know, this project also fits into a kind of per- personal politics of mine even though I should say the politics and historical situation within the book is very different from my own. So I'm, you know, I'm cautious about that too. I don't want to over-determine that. Um, but I think one of the interesting things um, uh, about your book uh, and, and about that particular sort of focus uh, is the argument that you uh, very early on make in the introduction about sort of uh, the way in which uh, African historiography itself has somehow, um, like you said, defined African identity in a very particular way as a result of nationalism. And as as a consequence of that, the histories uh, of these populations have been somehow uh, erased, not not, 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 even misrepresented, but just basically not studied. Uh, Could you speak a little bit about that historiographical setting? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the, I mean, to go back to an earlier point that I made uh, with regard to the long gestation period between finishing my PhD and the book coming out was with me grappling with this issue. Um, How do I talk about this uh, subaltern community or the subaltern population? Um, How do I narrate it? How does it fit into um, other discussions within African history and African studies more generally. And what I found is that, well, um, it doesn't fit well. Uh, the histories that I uncovered, um, you know, contrasted or complicated or were even antithetical, for example, to nationalist histories um, that had been written for, you know, uh, in the case of Zimbabwe or other um, you know, Malawi or, or whatnot, um, I, I basically found that the, the, the subaltern histories I was working on didn't fit easily into the paradigms of history that many scholars today um, have embraced and employed and have, have refined. 
So this goes straight to the title of the book, Unreasonable Histories. Um, it's somewhat of a tongue-in-cheek title, too, I should say. Maybe the maybe the humor is lost on everyone except me, but I just sort of, as I was working through this project, I kept thinking, gosh, you know, this is a really, you know, it's one of these situations where you're trying to, you know, fit a square peg into a round hole and, you know, just didn't fit. And that's eventually how I came across this notion of unreasonableness and unreasonable histories that we have to think about um, these histories that don't fit into our academic paradigms. Um, just, or let me just say something quick to that. It sounds like you're going to ask me a question. Um, but, you know, I think this also, it gets also to the root of, of being multiracial, multiracial people. Um, First of all, uh, you know, when we think of African identity, we think of someone who's black. And, you know, that's totally commonsensical. I don't necessarily mean to, to challenge that. On the other hand, um, you know, the African continent, just like any continent, is very diverse. And uh, I think it's important to recognize that. I think that... Um, you know, I, I don't want to, this might seem controversial to some people, but I, I think that the African historiography, as it's developed in the United States and, and also, uh, say, the, the United Kingdom, Europe, and so forth, in some ways it's colorblind. And what I mean by that is that um, even though it's common knowledge that you have Lebanese communities in West Africa, you have... Indian and South Asian communities, you know, across East and Southern Africa. Obviously, you have um, white communities in South Africa, um, Zimbabwe, and, and still some in Kenya. That we still, you know, embrace this African identity as being black. And so, one of the things that this book also does—not the tongue-in-cheek part, part, but the serious part—is to say you know, look, we need to complicate this category of African and um, deconstruct it. And uh, that's a a point that I make in the conclusion. So um, in any case, the the project of the book is about, um, it is very much making an intervention in terms of how we think of African identity and by extension, writing African history. Um, can I ask you just a question about as I, as I was reading and especially your your uh, the way in which the the, the title unreasonable um, the way you explained it just now and in, in, in the book I kept sort of kind of thinking as I, I understand but it seemed like at the beginning I had to go through a journey to to figure out how you got to unreasonable. <laughs> uh, I, I sort of I had to go through irrational and then understand well why irrational wouldn't work. And I, I wonder how much of a journey you went yourself. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, again, that goes back to the to the long period of time. I mean, the the actually the original title, the title uh, of my dissertation, my PhD dissertation, was colonial kinships, and that's something that I hung on to for a while, um, actually up to a a somewhat late stage, because what I was interested in was how 
multiracial people had kinship ties to both African and white settler communities. And so it basically complicated the colonial binaries we're used to of the colonizer and the colonized, white and black and so forth. And so um, I really wanted to stress that element of kinship and uh, that made its way into the title in terms of the genealogical imagination. Mm-hmm. So, so Unreasonable Histories was something that, you know, I can't necessarily pinpoint it, but, uh, you know, it was, it was a title that I decided to commit to around 2012. So like a couple of years before the book came out. And I should say too, that, it is enigmatic, which I also liked, frankly. I mean, I, you know, I realize some publishers <laughs> are totally averse to enigmatic titles. They want things to be searchable and, you know, keywords and so forth. And I, I resisted that. In fact, I, ha- I had a conversation with my editor at Duke and about this, and she suggested, why not multiracial histories? And I was like, well, it's... It was a little too on the nose. You know, it just sort of was, yes, these are multiracial histories, but I don't know, it seemed a little flat to me. And uh, there is a kind of, that. well, there is an irreverence to the book too. Um, and I like the idea of unreasonableness, um, even though that's not like wildly irreverent, but um, it, you know, I was trying to make, uh, a statement by using unreasonable. So, you know, I should say quickly that I do explain, um, you mentioned a journey to the title. The, you know, the introduction itself um, is maybe part of that journey insofar that I talk at the very end about what I mean about what I mean by unreasonable. And so just to state what I mean by unreasonable, there are three ways in which I use the term. The first is unreasonable in terms of of evidence and history. That is to say that, um, you know, these these, uh, communities, uh, and I should say the the local terms were Anglo-African, Euro-African, and Euro-African. So these, you know, these hyphenated terms that themselves indicate a a kind of multiracial identity that the archives for these communities are very fragmented and very minimal. Um, and this is where, again, subaltern studies comes into play. But the point being that, that uh, these communities are unreasonable in the sense that they're very hard to do historical work on. So there's, there's a methodological unreasonableness. The second form of unreasonableness is, is political that is to say that many of these multiracial people actually supported colonial rule. They very much identified with um, their paternal line. That is to say, their white fathers, and they felt they and there was a pragmatism to that. They felt they could gain favor um, and higher status, and you know certain benefits by identifying that way. So, from our standpoint. Um, you know, those, and I should say from my personal standpoint, maybe it goes without saying, I find that kind of politics problematic and unreasonable. Um, though at the same time, what I try to do in the book is articulate why people would support the colonial state. And I think that's a kind of history that 
more historians of Africa need to uh, look at. There's such a, um, you know, we always look at, you know, uh, African resistance or uh, liberation struggle narratives that we don't ask the basic question of, well, did anybody, you know, consent to colonialism and for what reason? So that's the second use of unreasonable um, in a political sense. And then the third reason is what we talked about before. That is to say, you know, these demographic groups complicate how we see African, the category of African, um, even though they might have identified as, as Anglo-African or Euro-African and might have supported the colonial state, um, they nonetheless had the hyphenated term of Anglo and African, like they were embracing both sides. And I think that's really important to think about. Um, they weren't rejecting uh, their African origins. They were trying to uh, repurpose them and rethink them in different ways. And so by extension, my hope of this project is to have us you know, think more complicated ways about Africanness and how it gets defined. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, that's kind of like the way... I talking too much, by the way. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. And in a way, it, it sort of completely sort of explains uh, why I end up being convinced that the word irrational was not the best word in that, in that sense, because that sort of would play into that idea that the the decisions to you know support the the colonial power or the ways in which they were repurposing those identities were not irrational they were perfectly rational uh but even though they might be seen as unreasonable in 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 uh, in, in perspective yeah exactly i mean i i did think um i did think of irrational i mean that yeah i mean irrational has slightly harsher and more judgmental um, and I should be very clear that, and this is something I talk about in the introduction, that, you know, I say that I disagree with the politics. Um, I, I talk about being in the archive and coming across these documents and being both fascinated but also troubled by the politics that I've found. And nonetheless, also believing that even though these politics are, are problematic, that, you know, these were people making lie. I mean, to, you know, paraphrase the, you know, the credo of many social historians going back to E.P. Thompson and, you know, Marx, that, you know, these are people making, the, making their own history, not under conditions of their choosing. Um, and so, you know, they were making certain choices that, um, in the short term, might have seemed very practical. That is to, you know, petition the colonial state, you know, seek to work with the colonial state. But as we can see in the long term, you know, that wasn't necessarily the best move. But it, it should be said, though, as well, that, you know, there were, there were, you know, this wasn't uncommon either. I mean, you had chiefs, you had, uh, you know, you had, um, uh, you know, black clergymen, um, you know, you had, uh, you know, a number of members of the colonized also working with the colonial state in different ways. So I would argue that that too could fall into the category of unreason or being unreasonable. Um, but again, you know, this is, this is, uh, um, 
something you know worth talking about debating um well in, now that you've just mentioned those three dimensions of of the title um the structure uh the you know you structure the book in three parts and each of them uh it seems like it, it wants to offer something not just in terms of like advancing the story or the narrative but also sort of uh, giving us some new tools as to how to tell these fragmented stories. Um, so let's talk, for instance, for part one, you know, you have this this idea of histories without groups. Can you tell us about how you came about uh, that particular idea or like narrative tool and, you know, more or less what the chapter is about? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, let me take a quick step back um, Ed, to one of the aspects of unreasonable is to get not to totally dwell on this. But um, one of the things that I was struggling with uh, in terms of writing the book, and actually, this goes back to the dissertation and doing field work and so forth, is that it became very clear to me that there's no sort of linear narrative um, that, you know, it's it, this, there isn't, uh, you know, a single narrative for uh, this community, and there's a lot of disjuncture and um, so forth. So um, the way I constructed the book was, um, in a sense, a series of case studies or a series of stories. Um, in fact, when I first was going through the book manuscript process in so many, I really wanted it to be like a collection of stories. Um, but through the peer review process that, you know, whatever, the peer review process, they like conformity and they thought that was too uh, non-conformist. So um, there is a organization um, to the chapters. I should say too that that the book starts in Nyasaland or Malawi and it moves out by the end of the book to encompass both Northern and Southern Rhodesia. So it sort of moves outward in the region um, and it does move chronologically. So the, the early chapters are um, basically during the 19-teens and before, and the final chapters are basically um, late 1950s, early 1960s, so the time of decolonization in British Central Africa. But to go to the part one, um, which again, as you mentioned, is entitled Histories Without Groups, Basically, the section um, is very much about, you know, how to do history of peoples that have, um, you know, very fragmented lives. And as a archival echo effect of that, um, leave little documentation. And, of course, this is something that historians of Africa confront in different ways, um, which, you know, has obviously led to the use of oral histories and other kinds of materials. And so this chapter, um, it's very much about narrating a particular history, but also, you know, thinking very self-consciously about um, sources of history and, and how we use them. In fact, chapter two is based entirely on a single document. Um, that I found in the archive that was written in pencil that had no author. And actually I love that challenge of trying to think through a particular document that with, with so little to go with. Um, so just to talk a bit further to not fully get into that chapter though, I'd love to talk about it further. Um, to go back to the issue of being multiracial or mixed race, most of these people um, were 
born from illegitimate relationships. And that is to say that, you know, there might have been some kind of, uh, you might call it an informal formality or a formal informality. That is to say that, you know, it's not to say that um, there was no relationship, but these weren't situations of recognized marriage and, you know, having a, you know, a stable family life, a stable domestic situation, um, that many of these children were um, abandoned by their fathers, which leads to a certain paradox later on of identifying with their fathers. Um, And I think this illegitimacy um, and the sense of shame that goes with it um, on the part of particularly white fathers um, contributed to, you know, this erasure in the archive, basically, you know, not reporting, you know, the birth of a child. And so, you know, there's a direct archival connection or documentary connection between the quote unquote illegitimacy of these children and um, the kind of archives that are left, which again are very fragmented. I should say too quickly that, you know, in the conclusion, I, I, I say that, and, you know, I, I, I say this in a soft way and I could have been more accusatory, but I feel like historians, you know, reproduce that illegitimacy. That is to say the, the illegitimacy, the perceived illegitimacy, I should say perceived illegitimacy of these children has been reproduced by historians who see this as an illegitimate, illegitimate quote unquote, illegitimate subject matter. That is to say, it's not worthy of historicizing. So I'm critical of that. I think this, I'm, I'm basically very interested in um, the situation of illegitimacy and its, its legacies, its ramifications. So I confront that in the conclusion. But, or go ahead. I was also just going to mention that I found it very, um, very interesting. I mean, as you know, in African history, there's this, um, I mean, I, mean, I want to put it like this a primacy, but um, a lot of importance is given sort of like oral testimony and oral uh, histories. And when you work on that, that for like the the very first chapter of uh, when you say that you have this expression about colonialism as a family experience, and how within that sort of leads you to sort of reflect on the fact that even even when individuals, when you when you were conducting interviews, and even when individuals were remembering these things, they were remembering things or telling you things very much with that sort of sense of illegitimacy and shame in mind. So in other words, even the things that they were remembering or willing to talk about were marked by that, uh, uh, by that emotion. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, I mean, that was a challenge of doing oral histories on the subject. I, and I, I should say, I mean, for, there were two basic challenges. I mean, one that, you know, a lot of these situations happened a long time ago. So it would be a, it, it would be a situation of me asking a person about their grandparents or even great grandparents. So it's not as if I was talking to the people who directly experienced um, that interracial history. The second thing is that um, is related to the point you just made. That is to say that um, 
Yeah, there's there's sort of this uh, shame about origins that um, you know continues generationally. That is to say that again, even though the granddaughter or grandson who I might be talking to, and keep in mind they're adults, you know, they they were older than me. They were you know in their forties or fifties or older. Um, talking to them about this, you know, it's as if the shame of their great grandmother or great grandfather had you know, been passed on generationally. And I, you know, I think um, obviously that speaks to how race is understood and um, how even though, uh, you know, we like to think we think beyond race, that there are still um in the world today you know feelings of um uh you know insecurity based on your racial background and um these sorts of things that's obviously a big topic and maybe we could talk about that in relation to my my work since then but but anyway it's it, it's absolutely true that um this illegitimacy aspect also um impacted doing oral history so um yeah it's a it's 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 a theme of of um part one. I should say quickly too that um in the first chapter um idioms of place in history, I do try to work against this sense of shame, the sense of illegitimacy by pointing to how um you know uh various forms of intergroup marriage or um you know, inter-ethnic marriage have occurred, you know, during the pre-colonial period and have gone on just as a common normative practice. Um, and certainly other scholars have looked at this in different ways. So um, like Megan Vaughn has an article on this specific to Malawi. Um, Paul Landau has looked at it more, um, has looked at it more widely um, in South Africa. But the point being that, um, you know, I tried to situate these these multiracial communities within a deeper history and a longer history of um, sort of multi-ethnic marriages and histories. That is to say, to make these multiracial people normative, not illegitimate. Like I hear the, the question that I was uh, thinking about now was, uh, and I think that's where like the idea of histories without groups uh, become becomes really useful precisely because these are, like you said, so much of we organize so much of African history around this like idea of ethnic groups, and you know as long as we have the, the those organizing principles, we remember that notion. Uh, we, we can we can place this like you said this this long history of multi-ethnic uh, marriages uh, in that longer history and all of a sudden colonialism comes by and sort of complicates that as if it was not one, just one more of those groups that comes in. And 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 I guess the question, like the, the, the relevant question that you're asking is why? Why would you, we not think of them in that particular way? Yeah, I mean, it, I, I, I sort of missed that last point. Let me... Um... Are you saying, could you repeat the last question? Yeah, uh, the idea is uh, 
why would we treat colonialism or the this this marriages that take place between African women and either Asian or European men as part of that long history of interethnic marriages? Yeah, I mean, I think I think I mean there are different reasons. You know, it's a good question. I mean, I think that um, certainly there's. Uh, you know, I don't mean to underplay the colonial aspect of the situation, too. I mean, certainly there's a different, maybe not entirely different, but nonetheless, a, you know, a different kind of power dynamic that's happening in the region. Um, and that, you know, contributing to this new situation of interracial relationships and so forth. Um, I think that, you know, to go back to to your, your your points about histories without groups, and you know this this uh, you know the title for this first part is that I mean the and it's something it was an idea that I was really um, frankly captivated by. It was something I grappled with a lot, and uh, again, it's 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 me making an intervention against as you were suggesting, against how we do African history and how we uh, do social history more generally. That is to say, there tends to be a group focus and, um, you know, narrating the history and status and uh, cultural practices of a particular group. And A, I think that, you know, there are people such as the people in my history and my book that don't necessarily fit neatly into a group or group identity. That's the first thing. But then the second thing is that um, I think that there's something very colonial uh, about doing group histories. And this is also, you know, a point that I make in the conclusion and I make it, I also make it in the, the intro to part one, but admittedly I make it somewhat softly simply because, you know, this is a first book and I don't want to antagonize um, some people, but, you know, I think the way we do post-colonial African history at times fits too neatly or, or there's too much continuity between the way certain ethnic histories are written during the post-colonial period in the way ethnic histories or ethnic studies are done during the colonial period. Um, again, centered on groups. Um, you know, there might be a different of, difference of tone or agency. That is to say, post-colonial histories have a more positive tone. They grant more agency. But in terms of framing what we study and write, I think there are certain continuities between the colonial historiography in the post-colonial historiography, um, continuities that should be interrogated more. And one of the things I was trying to do in this part one, the notion of histories without groups, is to challenge that basic framework of always writing histories centered around a particular group. Um, does that answer your question? I feel like I feel like I might have gone off a little uh, on a tangent, but but it's just an important aspect of that that part one as well, the concept of histories without groups. Oh, absolutely, and and it, like you mentioned, in if we follow up 
this up to the second chapter when you focus in this the story of Aidama, if I pronounce that correct, Adayama. Um, you know how you have this document that refers to um, this uh, woman, uh, and it's like you said that you have nothing else to go on but this document, and, and you ask this this very relevant questions about. Uh, you know, who are we writing this history about? For whom? Uh, and how much, what exactly, what meanings can we draw from this one history? And, and I would like you to speak a little bit more about that because I think, uh, again, you know, it's it, it's relevant to sort of the entire project of the book. Yeah. So, um, so chapter one is very much about what we just discussed about, you know, pre-colonial patterns of intergroup marriage, um, interviews and, you know, sort of stage setting. Um, and so it's very much a social history kind of chapter looking at um, very, you know, wide tableau and, you know, thinking about regional history in a big sense. So chapter two, then, Adaima's story <laughs> sort of shifts gears and becomes very focused. And this is what I mean by the book, you know, consisting of a series of case studies or what I'd prefer to call stories. And obviously, I invoke that directly with the chapter title, Adayima's Story. And basically, this chapter, as I touched upon uh, briefly earlier, it's based on a single document that I found in the Malawi National Archives that is written by uh, a settler, um, a man. A uh, white man who um, basically is describing a relationship he had with an African woman. Um, and it's a complicated story. I mean, it goes on for several pages. Um, basically, the this woman, um, Adaima, it's interesting, she has a name, or at least is referred to with a name whereas the writer of the letter is unknown. Um, the source of the name Adaima, and this is something I, I, you know, I was curious about, was it her actual name? Was it a, you know, a name that was given to her? Um, in talking about the situation with my Chichewa instructor, uh, Sam Chambo, who teaches it, uh, teaches in the linguistics department at UC Berkeley, he said, oh, it sounds like it could be a nickname, meaning the pregnant one. And effectively, <laughs> that makes total sense because Adaim, because this woman became pregnant by this, uh, by this um, white man and eventually had the child and um, uh, whose name was James. And um, basically... You know, it's a, in part a custody battle. So it's a, it's a complicated letter in the sense that it talks about a relationship, turns into a custody battle. He, the, the letter writer, the white man, basically wants control over the child. Adaima is reluctant to give, give the child up. Meanwhile, Adaima is also, you know, effectively trashing his house, um, stealing things, being very disruptive, so on and so forth. And it, it, it was just an episode that fascinated me for all the drama it contained. Um, let me take a step back and say two things. Um, this letter was unique. I didn't find 
another letter like this that had so much detail, another document like this that had so much detail about an interracial relationship. So, you know, as a, I was sort of faced with this decision. Do I treat this as totally eccentric and unique and just sort of fold it into a broader narrative? Or do I really try to interrogate it as a document? And obviously I chose the latter. So in effect, what I'm doing is, um, you know, sort of working against some social history, uh, the tenets of social history, where we look at a bunch of people at once. Again, this goes up to the, the main rubric of histories without groups. Um, you know, this history does and does not fit within um, a group experience. I mean, certainly Adaima's a woman. She can be placed, um, identified as African. She can be identified as a woman. But, you know, she's also her own individual. She's, a, she's her own person. And I really wanted to bring that out um, in the narrative. I should say, too, that, you know, as a consequence of this being written by a white settler, this is very much an exercise of reading against the grain and, you know, bringing out her agency. So on the one hand, even though this is a, a white man's perspective and voice, um, and it's very accusatory and very frustrated, um, we could see this as an exaggeration. That is to say that, um, you know, he's sort of, creating this drama so he might be seen as more entitled to custody because presumably he's writing to a colonial an official in the colonial government. On the other hand, we could also interpret this as, you know, a fairly factual account where, um, you know, Adaima has agency, the kind of agency she's expressing is control over their child, uh, disrupting the household, stealing things, and, you know, all of this, you know, as, as, as being a kind of agency within this single document. Of course, by extension, this raises other questions, too. Um, was this relationship non-consensual? Um, Adeima arrived in, in this man's household as a, as a, as a, um, as, as a servant of some sort. Um, it wasn't... Uh, you know, um, it wasn't very long term when the pregnancy happened. So, you know, we, it, you know, we can also conjecture: is this a situation of sexual violence and rape? And in the chapter, I don't come down and you know say this in any conclusive way, but I think it's important to raise those sorts of questions. And you know, stepping back a bit, I should say as well that. You know, there are other histories of, you know, the, um, you know, there are other books that look at interracial relationships and, um, um, like, for example, Karina Ray's book, um, Crossing the Color Line um, it, for the Gold Coast. And the, the histories there are very domestic. Um, that is to say, there's, you know, a kind of stability and, and home situation. Whereas it, Whereas in, in Southern Africa, um, and this could be, again, a difference of, of racial politics, um, but in Southern Africa, those sorts of domestic situations didn't happen. I mean, maybe every once in a while, but n- not 
not in the same way that uh, Karina Ray talks about her book. And that's not to say that obviously Karina is incorrect in any way. I think she wrote a great book. Um, but it's just to say that one of the things that I wanted to bring out in this particular story is the sexual violence. Um, and this also connects to, again, this issue of illegitimacy that, um, because children were born, we can't simply assume that this was a stable domestic partnership and, um, that it was a situation of, um, a household as such that, you know, probably these, a number of children were born from non-consensual relationships and, uh, we have to factor that in. So, um, again, even though it's a single document, there's sort of these multitudes, I think that that can be raised. And, uh, as I conclude the chapter, even though this woman's life is basically limited to a single document, that it's still important to recover her life and understand it as best we can and restore it to history. Um, so as I was telling you, um, I think Araima's story really sets up um, a lot of the questions that were, will be addressed uh, in, in further chapters. So let's go to chapter three when you talk about the stories of children, you know, children that are addressing um, the colonial government oftentimes in, in an attempt to try to find their, their fathers. Yeah, so... Again, the, I, I should say that um, th this goes back to the just quickly. This goes to the structure of the book. So, if um, chapter one is about place, chapter two is about interracial uh, intimacy and the possibilities of sexual violence, and again, it's about it. There's some. There's an issue of child custody as well. Um, chapter three moves on to children themselves, and um, so there's a kind of progression there. Um, chapter three, yeah, it's called coming of age. And basically it also focuses on a set of documents that I was looking at that I uncovered in, at the Malawi national archives that basically had children writing missionaries and the colonial state for assistance. And these children ranged in age from, um, you know, being actual children, that is to say, um, you know, being around the ages of 10, teenagers, and so forth, to uh, being young adults. That is to say, um, uh, people in their early 20s, but nonetheless still children as such of um, white fathers. And this is a very interesting, you know, situation, I thought. Um, and I talk about it being a form of written agency, um, that is to say, you know, using the power of pen and paper to make a claim. And uh, it should be said, too, that, you know, this was also very scattered, uh, similar to Adaima's story. This wasn't a case of hundreds of letters being written. It was more, you know, far more occasional, um, certainly more evidence than Adaima's story, but nonetheless a very fragmentary kind of evidence with these letters written um, in broken English, some were uh, written in Chinyanja, uh, a whole range. And, and nonetheless, what was important to me was not only the content of the letter, 
That is to say, you know, saying my father uh, has abandoned me and I, I need assistance. But it also, um, you know, the act of writing itself, indicating a kind of agency. And um, certainly I think that, you know, points to a process of identification. That is to say, these children who were writing, they might not have said, oh, I'm Anglo-African. But it points to a kind of identification in the sense that, you know, they're making an appeal to the colonial state, um, to their fathers, to assist them. And even though it's not, again, identifying, you know, it's not written with the purpose of creating a particular identity, nonetheless, I think that's an effect of it. Um, And so the importance of these letters are not simply, um, you know, children making um, you know, making an appeal, but also the larger effects of that, the ways in which, um, you know, these children are identifying with their fathers, which would in turn contribute to the emergence of certain, um, political organizations during the 1920s, thirties, forties, and fifties that basically are seeking to organize the interests of multiracial people and, and make claims upon the colonial state. So, um, Again, this is a chapter that's based on fragmentary evidence. And again, it speaks to the theme of histories without groups. Um, again, it's this isn't a group acting in coordination. Um, these aren't children who are necessarily representative of um, groups, but um, nonetheless, they have a history to tell. So I wanted to put them together and talk about them. Um, so the title, the chapter title, "Coming of Age," is you know very much about this process of you know going from a kind of politics of birth to um, new forms of identification as adults. Um, and for here, you know, you you set up all these um, amazing questions. So you move to part two, uh, where we start. Uh, kind of, uh, you start telling us the story of how, uh, in in the initial and in the part two, you know how the the colonial state starts to try to deal with this process. This, this process is these children are sort of undergoing of um, creating or thinking of themselves in a particular way, uh, and then we we go into part two into basically how is the colonial state going to think about them and what are the categories that they're going to try to develop to think about them. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about, uh, we have two chapters in part two, um, uh, you know, the, the, the questions that, that you try to uh, address in this part. Sure. So as I was just saying, the, you know, these children are writing the state. So basically I transition from that perspective of children writing the state to the state itself. So part two is very much a statist uh, perspective. It's, you know, how are states responding to the situation? And um, it's only two chapters, but, you know, effectively the state is is operating in, 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 in the, I should say, not only the Nyasaland government, but um, the Southern Rhodesian government, the Northern Rhodesian government, and frankly, the colonial office in London 
They're sort of responding to the situation in a very unclear way. Um, the first chapter, chapter four <coughs> of the section, The Native Undefined, is oriented around um, this question of who is a native. And it's anchored in a court case that happened in Nyasaland uh, that involved an Indo-African man. That is to say, his father was, was Indian. And he basically bought a car, a truck, Ford truck or lorry, um, with a loan and, and was behind on his loan payments. And so he was brought to court. And uh, Judge Haythorne Reed, who was um, the, the judge for the case, basically raised this question of, well, should, uh, should um, the defendant be tried as a native or a non-native? And effectively, it was decided that um, he was a non-native. That is to say that uh, because of his father's descent, uh, because his father wasn't, because his father was non-native, was uh, of Indian background and so forth, that um, that the defendant should be a non-native. So that was the case itself, but it generated this discussion among colonial officials um, beyond Nyasaland as to how to define native, the the term native, and what's interesting about this discussion is that it was happening during um, again the late. 1920s, uh, into the 1930s, really to the end of the 1930s. And, um, you know, is a native to be defined on the basis of race, which is what the Haythorne Reed ruling suggested. Um, the problem with that is that it could, you know, evince very clearly the racial politics of colonial rule which effectively is something that uh, many of the colonial uh, officials in discussion on this matter wanted to avoid. On the other hand, um, the alternative was to define native on the basis of culture. That is to say, um, you know, if you uh, practice local customs, customary practices and so forth, um, you would be considered a native or African. The trouble with that is that, uh, again, you know, this is the 1920s, 1930s. You had a number of uh, African converts to Christianity um, who were, you know, Western educated, um, you know, had, uh, you know, various, um, you, know, uh, you know, middle class type jobs. So would they be considered non-native? Um, the colonial officials were against that, too. They felt that you know, culture might open the door to um, this, this, this issue of letting um, a number of uh, black Africans who were considered natives, leaving it for them to be non-natives. So officials didn't want that either. So effectively, there was no solution. <laughs> and I, I found that fascinating. This is one of, one of the chapters, I mean, this is, uh, um, goes back to my PhD dissertation, but this is one of the chapters I worked on and presented on quite a bit because I just found it fascinating that this common term that we see in a lot of colonial writing um, and invoked in different ways, there was no clear definition of who a native was. It was it was understood who a native was, that is to say, a black African native being very racialized, 
um, and at times racist. Um, but, but in this instance, you know, there was an attempt at avoidance and in not being defined. Um, so it's a good example of how multiracial people complicated the legal um, categories at play, um, in the sense, complicating the term native. Um, it also led to a very ambiguous treatment on, uh, on the part of colonial states toward multiracial people. On the one hand, they, on, on certain circumstances, they'd be seen as non-native. Um, that is to be, that is to say they'd be seen as, you know, descendants of white settlers and be treated, um, different from natives. On the other hand, they didn't want to open that door completely, um, because it also, you know, led to, or could lead to, um, you know, certain obligations on the part of the state towards multiracial people. Um, so on and so forth. So it just captures not only how multiracial people or Anglo-Africans and Euro-Africans were ambiguous racially, they were also ambiguous legally from a juridical standpoint. And I think that's important because it complicates, um, again, the sort of usual framework we have of, you know, indirect rule and, you know, uh, Africans falling under customary authorities and settlers falling under a different set of laws. And um, this complicates matters. Um, well, and, yeah, you know, the, the sort of like the, the, the following chapter, when you talk about sort of like the, in, in light of this legal um, sort of ambiguity, um, the solution were, or like the, some of the solutions came from these commissions, you know, and uh, this practice of what you call the colonial bad faith, you know. Um, uh, can you yes. tell us a little bit about exactly. that? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I'm glad you picked up on that term. Uh, it's, it's another term that I really liked. Um, yeah, this idea of colonial bad faith, I mean, basically colonial states promising one thing and then not acting upon it. Um, so what I mean by that is, is basically starting in the, the 19, um, starting in the 1930s, uh, 1920s and 30s, state interest, of course, is picking up, um, not just through this court case in Nyasaland, but um, just by the sheer presence of uh, multiracial children. In fact, um, the first commission in Southern Rhodesia was all oriented around, um, the issue of children, um, the, you know, education of these children, um, the need to stop quote unquote miscegenation and, and all these things by the, by the late 1940s and the 1950s, these commissions are dealing with adults. And so it's sort of fascinating to trace the life cycle of, um, of multiracial people within these commission reports. That is to say that if you have children early on, you're, you have adults, um, you know, by the 1940s and 50s. But these commission reports, you know, the commissions, you know, are fascinating in different ways. And I mean, certainly um, other people have looked at commissions and drawn upon reports as sources of evidence um, one of the things that I want to do, do in this chapter, though, is not just 
sort of strip mine the reports for different facts and figures, but actually treat the reports themselves as a kind of literature, um, which is why I have this concluding uh, theme at the end where I talk about colonial governmentality and its literature. Um, so to treat the reports as a particular kind of document, and it should go without saying that, you know, these reports could be very long, um, you know, hundreds of pages long, and which, of course, makes them difficult to, to summarize in concise ways. But um, nonetheless, you know, there are ways of thinking about these reports. So as I mentioned, the, there was this report in southern Rhodesia that was concerned about children and the education of children. If these, uh, if multiracial children should be removed, quote unquote, from um, from rural villages, uh, you know, would that create a problem? There was concern that by by educating, um, you know, what sort of education should these children receive? Should they receive <laughs> a native education, non-native education? Um, it was all about, you know, the problems that the colonial state saw of, you know, creating a new social group. And eventually that group came into being, whether the colonial state liked it or not, just by sheer numbers. And so the later reports of the 1940s and 50s in Southern Rhodesia and Northern Rhodesia is, it's very much about labor. You know, it, it, it's very much about, um, you know, how do these uh, Euro-Africans, how do they fit into the colonial economy? Because in northern and southern Rhodesia, similar to South Africa, you had a split labor economy where basically, um, you know, skilled labor is reserved for whites, unskilled labor reserved for, uh, for blacks. And so colored, um, to use another term, colored Rhodesians and, and, and northern Rhodesia, colored northern Rhodesians, you know, they didn't, they complicated that split labor economy. And so um, basically uh, these commissions are dealing with, um, you know, the, those sorts of measures. And so the bad, so to go back to the bad faith part, you simultaneously have this situation where, and I should say quickly that, that there was no uh, formal commission in Nyasaland though the Nyasaland government drew upon commissions in southern Rhodesia and northern Rhodesia to inform their decision-making. Um, the, you have sort of this, this situation in southern Rhodesia, or excuse me, with these commissions, where on the one hand, there's clearly an expression of colonial concern. So, you know, again, just due to the paperwork, due to the interviews, um, you know, these commission reports took a lot of effort. On the other hand, um, you know, these commissions and their proposals uh, weren't really acted upon. And that's not necessarily unique. I mean, there are a lot of commissions in world history that produce reports and nothing happens. But but what was striking to me is that um, it, it, it just seemed to me that this is a way for colonial states to both express responsibility and circumvent responsibility. 
That is to say, you know, meet the appeals of um, the Anglo-African community in Aslant or um, the Euro-African community in Southern Rhodesia, you know, sort of say, okay, we'll look into it, but then not act upon it and especially not do any, do anything in a legal sense. That is to say, um, going back to chapter four and, and the legal problems of native and non-native, basically um, not doing anything that could uh, be, you know, totally, um, you know, firm and, and established in terms of law. So, so these commissions are expressions of state power. They're expressions of state ambiguity. They're, you know, expressions of interest and compassion on the part of the states, but they're also expressions of inaction. And all of that, to me, comes out of looking at these commission reports and, again, treating them as a, as a kind of literature, um, you know, elevating it a bit. Good. So. Um, so from there, from here, you go into the third part, uh, uh, which I think inherited the original title of your book, Colonial Kinships, uh, uh, where you focus on three ways in which these um, Euro-Africans, uh, African communities, um, started to define themselves. And, and, and here, I think, I, uh, you talk about descent culture and territory, and each of those uh, concepts is uh, addressed in, in each chapter. We have three chapters. Uh, here I also wanted to, to sort of remark upon how, uh, you, you may get very clear from the introduction, but here is in this, I think in this part where it starts uh, to become much more important, how much weight uh, you, you encourage us to give weight and to pay attention to the specific language that and the specific terms that people are using uh, during colonial times. Um, uh, so I, I would like you to sort of, as you so speak about these three chapters, um, sort of to remind us of why this is important. Sure. So, um, in fact, that goes back a bit to uh, Chapter 5 on commissions. Um, one of the things that these commissions did was to use the term colored. And uh, the term colored, it has an interesting genealogy in itself. I mean, in this specific instance, it's coming from South Africa. And the term colored used in the Western Cape in particular to talk about people of mixed background, um, colored South Africans. Um, what's interesting is that the term colored itself, you could see evolving across the British Empire in different ways going back to the 19th century. So it's, it has this complicated history that at times is very general and undefined and other times it's very specific as in the case of, of um, the Cape colored community in South Africa. So commissions in Northern and Southern Rhodesia started employing this term. And basically uh, this was very upsetting to uh, the communities, um, to, to the multiracial communities in um, Nyasaland and, and northern and southern Rhodesia. This is why I use the, the terms that they use and why I'm very cautious about avoiding the term colored. Um, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning of this, this interview, the term Anglo-African is a hybrid term, and it 
it's invoking not just a sense of being biracial, but it's also invoking a set of um, a, a cultural duality um, that is identifying with being British, but also identifying with being African. Um, it's embedded with not just race, but culture and also politics. You know, uh, to, to be Anglo-African is to assert a kind of loyalty um, to the colonial state. The same goes with you're African, that is to say, you're from Europe. Um, so I, maybe listeners might not understand that, but E-U-R. Um, so you're African or at times Euro-African, E-U-R-O hyphen African. Um, again, these are hybrid uh, terms that are invoking a particular kind of kinship, a particular genealogy. Um, they're not strictly racial. They're also cultural, um, political, and about loyalty. And the term colored has, not, has none of that. Colored is strictly a racial term. Um, it suggests a person of ambiguous racial background. And the term colored would be applied to not only people of mixed race background, but people from Goa, people from St. Helena, <laughs> you know, anyone who couldn't be identified as, as being African or native or, you know, South Asian, um, things of this nature. So, so basically the communities I was looking at, you know, they were very particular about labels and names and, you know, were seeking to assert themselves in a very specific way. And so the colonial kinships, uh, part three colonial kinships is very much about very much about this politics of, of not just labels and, and self-naming practices, but also how the how those self-naming practices contributed to um, this invocation of kinship. And as I have in the title of the book, um, this genealogical imagination. So um in the case of Chapter 6, it focuses on Nyasaland and how the Anglo-African Association was constantly invoking their genealogical connections to their fathers, which in turn transferred to the state. So they're very effectively using genealogy as expressions of loyalty to the state. Um, chapter 7 focuses on Southern Rhodesia. And in particular, I look at... Um, um, this newspaper that that basically was um, articulate. I mean, it, it was articulating all sorts of views about um, uh, the Euro-African and Euro-African community in Southern Rhodesia and the sense of loyalty they had to the state, the Rhodesian Tribune, which I should say quickly, um, at least when I was working on it, it was a very rare publication. Um, I could only find it in, in the Zimbabwe National Archives. Um, I don't think it's been digitized. It might have been digitized since, but um, in any case, it's it's a it's it's a very unique paper that that ran during the late 1940s, 1950s, and within the pages of this this paper, there was these constant debates about terminology, being very critical of people who use the term colored. Um, they saw that as a very racist term. They didn't see themselves as colored. They saw themselves as Euro-African. So that chapter is very much about this emergent discourse of, of identification and the implications it had in terms of um, being seen by the colonial state. 
And then chapter eight is about uh, Lusaka and urbanization. It's also um, it's also about name naming, but it's also about uh, space. It's I wanted to have a chapter about about uh, physical space, um, in part because uh, if you look at colored history in, in Cape Town, for example, it's it's you know there's a lot of work on District Six and Cape Flats and urbanization and. And colored identity, and I wanted a chapter that spoke to that issue as well. So um, these three chapters, the concluding section, are very much about you know grassroots politics, um, perspectives, ontologies, um, and political outlooks, and and the importance of terminology within all that. And I should say quickly too, I, this is another thing similar to unreasonable. I call this an I call this uncustomary politics. And it's sort of, again, a way of taking a term that we're all familiar with and revising it slightly to point to alternative kinds of identity and alternative kinds of politics. Um, uh, <clears throat> well, uh, now, now that we've sort of gone through most of the book, um, <laughs> I wanted to uh, ask you uh, now that you know the book's been out and you know you, you've done quite a bit of work since then. How do you see? Uh, well, the, what are you working on right now? Number one, but number two, how do you see um, this his, this larger historiographical problem? You know, this sort of like blindness uh, towards these particular kinds of communities and questions. Uh, that came out of sort of like nationalist historiography. Do you see it evolving? Uh, do you see it changing? Is it really stubborn? Uh, and how does your work have sort of continued to address that issue? Well, um, I'm working on several things. Uh, actually, I'm working on a number of things. But um, I mean, these are a lot of questions. One one, one way that I've continued this work actually is. I've done, um, I did a project on Alex Laguma, the South African writer who's uh, colored in background. And um, I did a book of his called A Soviet Journey, which is about his, effectively it's about his communist politics and his travels in the Soviet Union. Um, it's a critical annotated edition. Um, it first came out in 1978. The critical edition came out um, a few years ago in 2017. And uh, it's the longest account of one of the longest accounts of the Soviet Union by an African writer. Um, so it's, a, it's, it's an important text and it, it's very revealing not only of his politics, but of the politics, of the ANC South and the South African communist party um, during the seventies and eighties. My attraction to Laguma is because, you know, he was colored and I first read his fiction um, when I was a graduate student. And um, yeah, I mean, he's goes without saying he's very well known in South Africa still, if maybe, uh, you know, if, if not, even though he's, you know, very much situated with the apartheid period. Um, but what's interesting about him too, is that he, you know, is in, terms of politics is very much a contrast to uh, the communities I looked at in Unreasonable Histories. That is to say, he was a radical. He was a lifelong member of the Communist Party. His father was one of the founders of the South African Communist Party. So it's 
it's it's a good example of how you can't essentialize the politics of of you know multiracial people or or um, colored people uh, that there there's a spectrum as with any group. Um, I actually have a book coming out um, this next January. It's a collection of his nonfiction writing, um, or, or I should say, a collection of his exile writings. Um, that's coming out. Uh, the The book is called um, "Culture and Liberation: Exile Writings, 1966 to 1985." Uh, the book is my publisher says it'll be around 560 pages long. So, yeah, it's a very substantial book. It's something that I've been working on for some time. Um, but with the exception of three essays in that book, none of these essays have been collected before into a book. So um, a lot of these, these essays were published in Sachaba, published by the ANC. They also appeared in Lotus, Afro-Asian Writings. Um, it should be said he was Secretary General of the Afro-Asian Writers Association, which is another reason I'm interested in Laguma because I've done work on um, Afro-Asianism. So that's a project that's continuing the work that I've done, the the interest I have in multiracial people. Um, I should say, too, that at the moment, I'm actually also finishing an introduction to the thought, the philosophy of Kwame Anthony Appiah, and of course, Kwame Anthony Appiah is also uh, multiracial or biracial. His father is um, Joe Appiah, who was uh, a relatively well-known figure in the, the nationalist struggle in, in the Gold Coast in Ghana. Um, his father was, or excuse me, his mother was uh, English. So this is sort of a third step uh, in my set of interests um, with regards to multiracial people in Africa. And I, you know, I, I should say too that um, you know Anthony Appiah is, is uh, he sort of fits in between. He's not conservative. He's not radical. He's very much a liberal. Um, and I also appreciate Appiah's interrogation of race and identity. I think that clearly speaks to his um, his own uh, background and how he has sought to complicate these monolithic understandings of what it means to be African. So um, I'm attracted to his thinking in that respect. Um, I have another project. I'm not ready to talk about it, but <laughs> another project on, on multiracial people or, or maybe multiracial ways of being vis-a-vis Africa and the diaspora. Um, so anyway, I've continued to, to work in these directions. To, to, to go back to one other thing, too, I'm also finishing, <laughs> this sounds maybe a little crazy, crazy busy, but I'm also in the process of finishing a reader on race and racial thought in Africa um, that's part of the Readers in African Studies with Indiana University Press. And one of the things that I'm trying to do in that book is to, again, critique this colorblindness and talk about certain issues like, you know, whiteness and um, Indianness. And it's a little hard because, you know, there still isn't a lot of scholarship to go back to one of your questions. Um, you know, that, that scholarship, I think, is still starting to, to grow. And certainly there's some, some excellent studies um, 
James Brennan's book on, on, on Tanzania. There's a, there's, um, a great study in, in colonial Kenya. Uh, there's a, there's a, there's a, you know, there's, there's scholarship for sure on, um, the Indian community in South Africa as well. Um, and there are studies of, of whiteness in South Africa, but I think there's still a lot of potential to, um, you know, expand upon these subjects, I think. And I should say quickly too, that let's, you know, taking whiteness, for example, and complicating it the way that say David Rodiger has in the United States, you know, how the white, how the Irish became white, or excuse me, um, wages of whiteness. I'm confusing his work with another book. Um, you know, the ways we, it, by better understanding, you know, whiteness as a concept, as a, as a issue, as a problem, you know, through that we can understand blackness better. You know, I, I don't see, I don't, I don't think we should treat, um, these issues in isolated ways. Um, but instead, you know, understand the interactive nature of this. In fact, that goes in part to the book on Franz Fanon that I published in 2015, where, you know, Black Skin, White Masks is very much about how blackness is understood in relation to whiteness. And we can't really understand the two in isolation, that, that being black is in part being seen as black by white people. And whiteness is also you know, constructed by how, um, how black people see whiteness. So, you know, it's very dialectical, um, very phenomenological. And, and I, 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 my hope is that, you know, again, we complicate this, uh, you know, the ways we see being African and, you know, move away from the ethnic paradigm, which I also talk about in the introduction to, unreasonable histories, you know, we've been dominated by an ethnic paradigm and there, there are good reasons for that. But I think, um, again, like with any part of the world, there's, there are all these different identities at play and, um, it's important to understand these different intersections. So, so I'm still working on these, these issues in different oh, ways. Wonderful. We wish you the best of luck in well, your you. current work and all the work that you're doing. Too much. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. Don't worry about it. Yeah. We thank you so much for your time. And uh, we look forward to talking to you about some of your future books. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for the invitation. Yeah. Thank you very much. 